0: Yes. Well, first, just to kind of clarify the basic uh, language of the question, uh, I think it's not so much uh, practicing uh, with the motivation to help others, but practicing with the motivation to help all beings. So that includes us. So I think that's just an important So we're not creating a sense of separation right in the beginning. Because that sense of separation itself makes the motivation impossible in a certain way because, as I think I've expressed at different times during the retreat, What really opened up for me the possibility of bodhichitta was the realization that compassionate activity flows from emptiness, flows from the understanding of selflessness, not so much, or it's limited, when it flows from the sense of self. So if we are trying to practice as a self, for the benefit of other beings, not only do we find that that's motivation may be hard to find within us, but it's really a very limited kind because it's coming from that place of separation rather than from the place of emptiness. So that's the first piece. The more we understand, or the more we're realizing or living out the realization, to whatever extent, you know, the understanding of selflessness, then compassion, compassionate response, compassionate motivation, is not a stance that we're taking. It's a simple, spontaneous responsiveness to situations, to suffering, not from a place of I me being separate from the situation, but just when we're not fixated or self referenced, then in that situation of suffering compassionate response follows in much the same way that if you know your hand is in fire, well, should I take it out? Shouldn't I take it out? (laughs) There's no question. I mean we just we do it because we're not we're not feeling separate from the hand. I think it begins to happen in that way more and more. Um, so that's all on one side of it on the other side, I think it is important not to have sort of these great idealistic notions that from the first thought that altruistic motivation might be a good idea, to thinking we actually can practice it. you know, And I, I think I've quoted the Dalai Lama a few times when he goes on about bodhichitta and he says, now I can't really begin to practice this, but I do think it's a good idea, <laughs> deep in my heart. And it's just, it's a wonderful, and this is the Dalai Lama speaking, for myself it's really opening to that really as an aspiration, And, and as an aspiration born out of the understanding of emptiness. Understanding that's really where that energy of bodhichitta and of compassion most fully flowers. And then to realize there's a huge amount of self-referencing in our minds and in our lives. This is a conditioning that goes very deep. And we can even use that, understanding that, as a motivation to walk on the path. Now, yes, we're we're in suffering. We're seeing the suffering in our own minds. We can be motivated to try to come out of that personal suffering. I just found it very broadening and opening, even as we're practicing with that primary motivation to free ourselves from suffering, just to hold it Hold it in some context of understanding. Yes, may my own efforts to free myself from suffering also be for the benefit of all beings. And even if it's just the tiniest seed of an aspiration, I think it's very powerful and transforming. But again, all of this is by way of exploration. You know, there's not, this is not dogma or some belief we need to subscribe to, and it may not even be relevant for, for each one of us. And you know, I'm in a way sharing uh, a piece that has been very significant for me uh, in recent years. I think I forgot the last part of your question. I see it as just this really. Um, I'm going to really mix metaphors here.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just like this beautiful jewel, you know, a beautiful jewel of understanding the interconnectedness that is the expression of emptiness, and that maybe we have a glimpse of that or maybe we have an aspiration to have a glimpse of that you know just the smallest here's where i'll change change images it's just maybe the smallest seed we just practice you know with what whatever motivates us to practice we just keep watering that seed little by little Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, uh, uh, The question was about generosity and the practice of generosity and whether there's a body of teaching about using that as a practice really to deepen one's understanding and realization of selflessness and emptiness and interconnectedness. Um there's no specific like text that comes to mind or or although there might be uh but in the readings about generosity and more importantly from the actual practice of it uh It clearly is a way, especially if it's done with a skillful motivation, so that we're not kind of taking pride in our generosity, but it really is a letting go and a renunciation of a sense of self for the benefit of others. You know? Yeah, and so I see it as a, as you know, it's the first of the perfections of the Buddha, and. I see it as a very powerful practice because it's a direct in the moment it's a direct cutting through of clinging and grasping and i and desire you know so it's it's very powerful and it's also this wonderful teaching about how much we hold on to things for whatever reason for happiness for security for some idea. And then there's a practice of generosity in some way, whether it's of things or energy or whatever, anything that we have been holding. And seeing that there's no loss involved. You know, so that's that's an amazing thing to see. Huh? Huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. The, did you hear that in the back? Uh, the, the comment really was about the sense in practice of the habit of holding back in one way or another from being in the moment, from being fully present. And it's only in the last few weeks that Chaz felt that he was able actually to be there fully in the moment. And What's that about? you know? And how can one work... With, that sense of holding back. Um, I'm just interested, what was your actual experience of holding back? What was that like? What were you doing? When you say holding back from the moment, Yeah, I mean, that's what that's what was coming to my mind as you were speaking, that there are there very deep-rooted fears in us and that they act as that kind of contraction. Or And often this fear we're not even aware of until there are moments of it falling away. And then we realize that we've been holding. We didn't even know we were holding until it stopped. Uh, but I think the more that happens... We begin to recognize the signals, having had the experience of letting go of that fear and then just being present. It's like then, when the fear arises again in one form or another, it becomes more noticeable to us. And I think that's a lot of uh, our practice is making conscious what has been unconscious. You know, and what's so amazing is you know you know from so many days and weeks and months of practice, how much of our lives are driven by things in the mind that we're not even aware are there until we stop and start paying attention. And that's what's so remarkable about the practice and about the Dharma. It really is about waking up. It's awakening to all the process. I hope you realize by now that it's really not a question of what it is that's arising in the mind. It doesn't matter. It's really a question of, are we aware? Are we mindful of what it is? And it's, it's quite amazing to be practicing awakening. This is a big one. <laughs> it is, there aren't many people doing it. <laughs> so, there aren't. You know, it's even the notion of awakening it wouldn't mean anything. You know, and it's so amazing to go through a time like this of, of extended practice. And just seeing over and over and over again all those times when we're asleep. You know, when we really are lost and caught up and acting out of desire, aversion, or fear, whether it's in sitting posture, or in the dining room, or wherever. And then coming back to that moment where we're really present. And we know what's going on, when we see even the whole range of defilement. But we're awake to it. Well, that's It's really quite extraordinary. Um, First, I think self retreats are really wonderful to do, you know, because it just is a whole different experience of developing self reliance and self discipline in the practice. I mean, as a simple support, if you have not done many self-retreats before, and just as a way of starting, uh, you might set yourself a schedule. You know, so, so there's not a lot of question in your mind about what you're going to be doing. You have the schedule of sitting and walking, sitting and walking, you know, lunch or whatever. After some time, after you become quite confident, you know, in that form of practice, you think you hardly need a schedule, you just sit as long as you sit and walk as long as you walk, and sit and walk. I mean the beautiful thing about this practice, there really aren't a lot of choices <laughs> in what to do. <laughs> you know. It's sit or <laughs> walk <laughs> with a certain allotted number of teas a day. <laughs> That's the big danger of self-retreat, you have to monitor. Uh, But it's really a wonderful thing to do and uh, be prepared as in this retreat uh, for yogi mind attacks. You know, and here it's, there's a lot of support and you know, the talks and the interviews and each other, it's support for not getting lost for too long in yogi mind. Uh, On self retreat, of course, you need to rely on your own inner resources. If you're overly worked up about something trivial, Let that be a signal that it's yogi mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I, I think it's really a good thing. as you said. It was more letting go of something than seeing something in a certain way. I noticed a difference when I began to let go of the motivation of practice primarily for myself. And so, as I opened to the possibility that we can practice this motivation, that you know, it be for the benefit of all. Just seeing the difference in that, there was a certain quality of striving that I had been taking taking to be right effort. And I hadn't been seeing that contained in that right effort. In a way, it was a holding back. In the way Chas had been talking about A holding back in the sense of practicing coming for what I'll get. And of course that was, it wasn't really right effort, because in a subtle way it was reinforcing the sense of someone to get something. And so it was liberating to see that the practice could unfold with all of its benefits For oneself as well as others, but without that striving for self, and therefore without that reinforcement of it. And it just felt all of a sudden like a certain wall had come down. And then then it felt, it feels like the Dharma flowering. It's just, you know, sit and walk and sit and walk and let the Dharma unfold. And in its nature, And this, Adan indicated this also in his question. In its nature, the Dharma benefits all beings. It's not something that we have to do. And that's why I say it's more a getting out of the way, taking the self out of the way, in terms of that kind of striving. And then practicing with total energy and letting the Dharma It's just the Dharma does its thing, which happens to be compassionate activity. So. I'm Well, I think there there are two questions, um, or two aspects of this. One is, (laughs) there are actually two, in a way, contradictory things. But after three months, (laughs) no problem. (laughs) From one side, and this is unusual from a Western perspective, but it's, it's a common Eastern notion. And so just put it out, it's not that you have to believe it or disbelieve it, it's just how things are expressed. In some Buddhist and also other non-Buddhist Eastern traditions, the seat of consciousness is said to be the heart center, not the physical heart. Of the heart psychic center, as opposed to the brain or the head. You know, of course, from a Western point of view, that doesn't make that much sense. Um, there are certain experiences in meditation where it feels as if thoughts are actually arising here, not here. Somebody once sent me some article on physiology and uh, it was something interesting just about some physiological, I don't know, I'm going to get this a little wrong, but some neural connection or something between the heart and the brain so that there was actually some physiological connection going on So then I thought, well, that's interesting, who knows where things begin? You know, maybe it begins here and, you know, gets processed through the brain or the other way. Uh, So it's just to know that there are certain meditation experiences and many great masters, you know, who have suggested that something's going on in the heart center related to the seat of consciousness. Oh, I would just hold that as a possibility. From the other side, I think that maybe we make too much of a distinction between heart and mind, you know, and because in because in English, we have two separate words for it. Um, in a lot of the Asian languages, as I think I've mentioned, it's the same word for heart and mind. And somehow that feels more unified to me, wherever it's located, you know, or in some relationship between energy centers, but that it's basically one thing, you know, this consciousness, awareness, object of consciousness. And so i just be wary of a split. That's why I kind of, I like the phrase, the heart-mind, you know, kind of. It all together. It is interesting to watch the physical manifestation of kalasis in the mind. You know, when we're caught by fear or by anger or by lust or by desire or whatever, you know, aversion, irritation. I find that very often I'm feeling it as a contraction here, just energetically, you know. And then it might get expressed conceptually in different ways, but energetically it's that tightening. And so a practice for me, which seems very effective and right in the moment and non-conceptual in the noticing of the contraction of the heart around something, And noticing that, right in that moment, practicing relaxing the heart. and I've I've talked about this at various times. Letting the heart relax into, you could say, the space of awareness. Which then, as I've said, becomes the space of non-separation. Because we're not contracting into a sense of self. And so that this becomes a great practice as you go out in the world, you know, because there'll be many, many times when situations arise and there's that, there is that contraction. Well, instead of simply blaming the situation or getting irritated at the situation or looking for some resolution through a change in the situation, can we at least start our practice right there within ourselves. Okay, can I just relax the heart in this situation? And there are many, many times to practice this. and It's really wonderful because it's, it's very freeing when we can do it. I think largely it's the awareness itself because in the moment of becoming aware of the contraction, you know, feeling that energetic tightness, in the moment of becoming aware of that, in that moment, we are no longer caught or identified (laughs) with whatever thoughts we're having. It's, It's as if we've dropped underneath the thought loop into the energetic level of our mind body. And it's perhaps an interme- an intermediate step might be in feeling that tightness, that contraction, we might ask ourselves, you know that question, well, how am I relating to this? You know, and so, just to see am i am I tightening around it? Am I accepting it? Am I allowing it? Am I aware of it? Do I want it to go away? Am I angry at it? You know and just that question, how am I relating to this contraction already sets the stage for the relaxation to happen and it's it's basically simply through the awareness. you know there's no there's no kind of magic thing you need to do. And it might not happen in the first moment of awareness or the second, you know. but it definitely positions oneself correctly rather than kind of being caught in the loop of blaming the situation for how we're feeling. I mean, this is a big one. It's really a big one because it's a very hard lesson to learn that we are actually responsible for how we're relating to our own feelings. I mean, the feelings come from a whole variety of causes and conditions, but how we're relating to them is totally up to us. That's not... (laughs) It's nobody else's fault how we relate to sadness, to anger, to fear, whatever, you know. And that's where the freedom is. The freedom is right within us and in our own relationship to the emotions. It's not, the freedom doesn't depend on the emotions not being there. It depends how we're able to hold them. And that's that's completely our responsibility. And what follows from this, which I'm sure you've noticed and will notice, that the freer we become in the experience of the whole range of our emotions, the more responsible and effective our responses can be. So it's not that situations never call for a response, they often do. But where is that response coming from? Is it coming from a place of our own contraction? You know, in anger and fear, or is it coming from a place of wisdom? Oops. It's definitely a practice. Uh, the question was, with thoughts coming with images, is it more helpful to notice seeing or thinking? I would see which is more helpful. I mean, I don't think there's any particularly right or wrong way there. If you f- you might take a look to see which aspect of it is more compelling. You know, what pulls you in more? Is it the, is it the image or is it the words? And that may change. You know at different moments uh, but if it's clear which is the more compelling aspect then I would probably note that but if it's not clear I would just experiment you know and, and you could also you know thinking thinking and you're still lost try seeing seeing <laughs> or the other way The question was whether it's sometimes helpful or wise to open the eyes when we're lost in obsessive thoughts. I think it is. I mean, I've noticed that myself very often. If I just get caught on some train of thought and I'm kind of trying to note or be aware, but I'm on the train, (laughs) you know, and it's really going. I find it's really helpful to open the eyes because it's as if it cuts the momentum, that forward momentum of that thought process, and just, oh yeah, I'm just here, and that's just a thought. Uh, So yeah, I think it can be really helpful. Question was, what to do about enjoying boring thoughts? (laughs) Well, it is really true that most thoughts are (laughs) really boring. I think the place of interest is really not, I mean, what's being thought for the most part is irrelevant. You know, every once in a while we have a thought that's maybe useful. (laughs) (laughs) And so the more interesting question is, and point of investigation, is just again and again, whether on retreat or off retreat, it's the same mind working. Really paying attention to the difference between being lost in thought and knowing that you're thinking. Because it's the difference between being asleep and awake. You know, and so whether the thoughts are boring or interesting really doesn't matter. It's the same point of investigation and of really noticing all the many times when we're just caught up and we're carried away. And then again, as many times as that happens, to really try and catch that moment of awakening from being lost, because that moment is revealing a lot about the nature of awareness. Now, usually or very often, the thoughts are coming, we're lost, And then we're no longer lost, but we don't recognize that moment of coming out from being lost, of coming out of the movies of our mind. Well, I think it's a very helpful practice to just try to recognize, you know, when we can, what it's like to come out from the dream, even if it's just for a few moments. (laughs)
1: Stuff? Yeah. I've
0: something. <laughs> you know, it's like there's a huge journey of awakening, huge. I mean if you take as an example you know, the Buddha as the fully awakened mind or even the example of just you know, a fully enlightened being who may not be the Buddha, which means the uprooting of desire and anger and fear and delusion and ignorance and then we notice our minds, there's a little work to do. (laughs) And so if you think of this as, you know, just just this magnificent journey towards greater and greater understanding, whether we've gone half a mile, or a quarter of a mile, or two miles, (laughs) It doesn't mean anything. And so to, to bring that kind of measuring mind to the practice, it's just completely irrelevant. It's just bringing a mind, our usual worldly mind, to an arena where it does not apply. And when we finally realize this, and just kind of settle back into the moment, and as I said, just... We practice and we let the dharma flower. This is, this is a vast, magnificent undertaking. And just to rejoice in the fact that you know, it's, it's happening. That seems to me a much more appropriate understanding of what's going on. No no it is it is for everybody. I mean that's that's part of what we learned. it. part of the rejoicing is exploring the first noble truth. <laughs> There's a lot of suffering along the way. You know this is not uh, when I say you know rejoice in the path it's not sort of kind of love enlightened bliss trip as you know. But it is a, a kind of a deep sense of appreciation of the path that we're on—the path of waking up—and in that, there's a lot of struggles and a lot of suffering, and a lot of joy at different times. So, I, I would really encourage you, if you know, if, if this kind of comparing measuring mind arises measuring tape (laughs) that's all it is Those unnameable emotions. <laughs> well, it's hard to say since I'm not sure which ones you're talking about. <laughs> but but I think whether there are, you know, words are always limited. Concepts can never capture the fullness of our experience. And so it's not at all surprising that there's a whole range of feeling, whether you call them mind states or emotion, I think doesn't matter, it's just... Hmm? Mm-hmm. I, I think that it's really a question of opening to the experience of them exactly as they're presenting themselves, You know, even if you can't locate it exactly in the body and you can't name it but there is a certain quality and feeling tone there. That's fine. And you could just put a generic label. You could just feeling. you know, Because again, the practice is not so much even in particularly knowing a name for it, but more it's in your relationship to it. Are you identified with it? Are you not identified with it? Are you simply open to the feeling of it, seeing the impermanence of it? I mean, that's the important aspect. And there's a lot that's very hard to describe in words. But the experience is vivid. And so whether or not we have the word or the concept, uh, it doesn't really matter.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You may have you may have misconstrued the term beginning. <laughs> beginning is the first eighty years of practice. <laughs> you know, it's really a question of the rhythm between. Focusing the attention on the breath and coming back to the breath and times of settling back into a more choiceless awareness where you're simply aware with whatever is arising. And always the practices are going back and forth. There's a very natural rhythm which happens at all stages of practice Uh, between those two. Kind of the open awareness of sounds and sights and feelings and sensations you know, in a very choiceless way, and then at other times really focusing on the breath, if the mind wanders coming back to the breath, so there's not really, uh, it's one practice. The question was about mindful reading, studying, writing. You have to find just the right level of mindfulness for those activities, because uh, obviously when you're trying to read or study, and if you keep noting reading, 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 (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to (laughs) work. You know, and basically you're going to just start seeing black on white. (laughs) So you have to sort of let go of the noting mind for a while. (laughs) But it is interesting with with a foundation of mindfulness, even as you really just apply yourself in a concentrated way, but in a conceptual one. So you're actually on the level of concept. So you're understanding the words and the meaning, but there can still be a quality of awareness in the mind. You can almost call it a background awareness of mind states. So if you're reading, you know, and you feel your mind all of a sudden filled with some unwholesome mind state, the mindfulness would be there, you know. And it's like catching that moment arising, and that could be very useful. You know, I think in one Dharma talk, I had mentioned, you know, the blurb on a certain, you know, on a book it said like a novel of lust, murder, violence, and something or other. Something for everyone. A real delight. <laughs> you know? Well, it may be that certain kinds of books elicit certain mind states. Uh, So that could be useful to notice. But normally, I think it's just getting into the conceptual level and doing it. I don't think it's so much a question of uh, this active, noting mindfulness that's appropriate. The difference, if there is one, between yogi mind and papancha mind, uh, well, we just made up the term yogi mind after a few three-month courses. (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah, it seems to be a phenomenon here. (laughs) Actually, I noticed it very clearly in myself. It is the same. I mean, it's the, Papancha means proliferation, you know, and conceptual proliferation. And so obviously yogi mind is that, but we use that phrase really when it's not just meandering mind, but where we really get caught in an intensity that has no relationship to the actual moment. If you go into a murderous rage because the right brand of toothpaste wasn't available, <laughs> you know that's yogi mind. <laughs> it's like, and it's possible I mean, it happens. <laughs> where somehow we just get so caught in you know, the narrowest sense of what's going on, and obviously it touches something much deeper, but instead of really noticing and looking to see, okay, what's going on here? It's as if all our energy is in the situation. And as I say, out of all proportion to what... So that's usually what we mean by yogi mind. So it's like advanced stage of papancha. It is quite amazing, you know, what the mind can do. John, um, I think the simplest framework of understanding, and the most comprehensive and powerful is to see that the path of practice are the three fields of training, a sila, samadhi, panya. That that is the path to awakening, to enlightenment. And so really paying attention. And in the world, of course, it's even a more fertile ground for paying attention to sila. And just really watching it. And we, we can either use the traditional five precepts as the guidelines, or the general principle of non-harming, in whatever way we really keep that alive in us, but to really be practicing it, not to assume, yeah, I'm basically a good person, I don't go around hurting people, and because we're assuming that level uh, of sila, we we then no longer pay particular attention to refining it. And I just feel it's, it's really a wonderful and deep and transforming practice. Uh, and it takes being really mindful and really being conscious about our actions of speech, you know, of body, speech, and mind. Um, so that's one, it's just to keep that in mind, that sila is the practice of it and the deepening of it and that Refining of it is worthy of our attention. The development of samadhi, of concentration, and for me, it clearly means uh, a commitment to a daily practice. You know, three times. <laughs> <laughs> Four times <laughs> again, I can't remember you know now over the months what i what I mentioned in the hall, but uh, something that really inspired me um, was a friend, really an acquaintance, he's a psychiatrist in uh, Amherst, and he's a Goenka student, you know which is Goenka's of a Vipassana teacher of a, of another tradition but Within the Vipassana fold, and he Goenkaji emphasizes a lot, and he really puts it out a lot, sitting twice a day, sitting an hour twice a day. That's that's something. Well, this guy, this this acquaintance, we were each giving uh, talks at a conference, and in the course of his talk, he mentioned. He said for the last 20 or 25 years he did not miss a single day of sitting two hours, once in the morning, once in the evening. That was very impressive. You know, and This a very busy guy, very active life, family. you know. So it's not like he's a hermit in the woods. The commitment to his Dharma practice was so incredibly strong and that form of it It was very moving to me, you know, because I've noticed in my own life there have been long times where I did sit twice a day and long times when it wasn't twice a day. It was once a day. Mm -hmm. And times when it fell away, but then I would come back. And I just feel it's really essential that we keep working on that discipline and see really... You know, let it rise to the level that you're both inspired by and can do. You know, so if it could be twice a day, that would be great. And it makes a difference. If it's once a day, make it every day. You know, and it's just, it's not easy. Because the pulls of the world are very strong. And as we've said, there's not a lot of reinforcement out there you know, to remind us. And so it really takes internalizing this commitment and prioritizing it. And it makes a huge difference. That's the samadhi part. You know, this, this is all in brief. And the panya part of the training, the wisdom part, I think one of the most This is like condensing a Dharma talk into 30 seconds. Three simple things to cultivate the, uh, the wisdom part. Pay attention to the fact that things keep changing. Don't underestimate the value of seeing impermanence because it's the seeing of that that actually conditions letting go of clinging. And impermanence is obvious on every level, so we just have to look, not forget. Pay attention to when you're suffering. Because suffering always is revealing some kind of attachment. And this is the second noble truth attachment is the cause of suffering. Okay, so when we're so often we miss the attachments, they're very deep, but it's easier to not miss the suffering. But can we take it as a wake-up to look rather than simply drowning in it? You know, or blaming someone for it? Or when we're suffering, that can be a real wake-up call. That's like a mindfulness bell. We're suffering in our lives in the world. What's happening? How am I getting caught? How am I... You know, how, What am I identified with? So that's a piece that really, really develops our wisdom mind and of course watching for those moments during the day of selfing you know, where is the eye strong we're going along, going along and all of a sudden there's that contraction of self well, we can look for that and you know, we can really practice seeing that so that's the whole Dharma right there And it's doable, you know, even step by step. We just reinforce these habits of mind, of paying attention in these ways. And many times we'll forget, you know, and so it's not to get judgmental about that. We're on the path. And so it's forgetting and coming back. But I think having the commitment to these and even reflecting on them each morning can really help. It can... Set the mind for the day. Okay, last question yeah. That would be a great thing to look for. <laughs> uh, Matthew was saying, "Would't a fourth thing to? notice, not only when the mind is attached or selfing, but actually to notice those moments when the mind is free. You know, free of attachment, or free of grasping. Yeah, and I think... um, Because that part, I mean, it was contained in the others, but to actually make it explicit like that also brings about a great delight. So maybe I'll just leave with uh, this one instruction. Uh, Might be a helpful thing to carry into the world. In light of this question of awareness, short moments, many times. But instead of thinking there's some state we have to get into and hold on, it's just short moments many times of release, of letting go, of being present. So that's possible. A short moment is possible. We do it again and again and again. Let's sit for just a few minutes.